Welcome to the Money Answer Show with host Jordan Goodman. Whether you are starting out, deep into your retirement, or somewhere in between, the Money Answer Show has the know-how to help you. Now here's your host, Jordan Goodman. Welcome to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Gary Smith. He is the Fletcher Jones Professor of Economics at Pomona College in California. He's also the author of a new book called Money Machine, The Surprising Simple Power of Value Investing. Welcome to the show, Gary. Thanks for having me, Jordan. Let's just talk about your career a little bit leading up to being a professor and what experience you've had on Wall Street uh, before coming to be a professor. Well, I grew up in a uh, very modest circumstances out here in uh, Southern California. I think our first house was uh, my mom and dad and me and three kids, and it was 900 square feet, 100 yards from a railroad track. And uh, the great beauty of America, of course, is that uh, <coughs> there's upward mobility. <laughs> you go to college and uh, you, you move up. And so I went to a uh, science and engineering school. I majored in the mathematics, and then I went to Yale Graduate School. And I had the fortune of uh, having a, a mentor and then later a colleague, James Tobin, who was a wonderful man. And uh, he got a Nobel Prize in part for what he did in finance. And there was a, there was a time at Yale when I was starting out, after I got my PhD under Tobin's supervision, I stayed to teach at Yale for seven years. And uh, they asked the students what, what they would like added to the curriculum. And the big winners were Marx and the stock market. And I wasn't so interested in Marx, but the stock market was great. And so I uh, volunteered to teach the class, and I asked Jim uh, to recommend a textbook. And he said, uh, John Burr Williams, Theory of Investment Value, which, which was not a textbook at all. It was, a, uh, it was his uh, PhD thesis, and John Burr Williams was the father of value investing, and that, that hooked me. And the great thing about finance is it's got, uh, it's got everything you'd want for to be intellectually challenging and rewarding. It's got, it's got theories, it's got rationality, it's got uh, money, <laughs> it's got human emotions. It deals with all this, all this very interesting things. And so I, I was just hooked for life. And so I've been investing and uh, teaching investments for longer than I want to think about. And a lot of my, a lot of my former students are out, out in the real world now uh, <laughs> doing very well too. So you're promoting something in this book, Value Investing, which is very much out of favor today. I mean, growth has been doing really well. Yeah. In, index fund passive investing is doing really well. The stock market keeps hitting one record high after another. Yeah. Value investing seems kind of uh, out of favor and dowdy and kind of old school. Why should <laughs> well, people do value investing? School. It's definitely old school. It goes back to John Burr Williams, and that was written in the 1920s, and uh, it's had a long history. But it, it has survived. It survived the dot-com bubble. It'll survive whatever's going on now because, because it, it, it makes sense. You know, most people, when they buy stocks, they think about, uh, you know, buy a stock today for $20, $20 a share, and then uh, maybe tomorrow or maybe next week or maybe next month I'll sell it for 30 and uh, make, make a nice profit. And the, the thing about that is sometimes it works out and sometimes the price goes down to 10 And the thing about stock prices is you, you never know whether it's going up or down. You know, J.P. Morgan said stock prices will go up and they'll go down, not necessarily in that order. And it's really, really hard to predict changes in stock prices. And the, the wonderful thing about value investing is you, you don't have to. You don't predict zigs and zags in stock prices. You think about stocks like a money machine. That's why I called the book Money Machine. And you say, here's, the, here's this machine. Don't call it stocks. Call it a machine. And it puts out a dollar this year, $1.05 next year, $1.10 the year after that, $1.15 the year after that. And what would you pay to have this wonderful machine that just gives you money every year? And you're not buying the machine to sell to somebody else. You're, just, you're buying the machine for the dollar, $1.05, $1.10, et cetera. And in the long run, it doesn't matter whether the stock prices go up or down. I mean, in the long run, they'll certainly go up. I mean, stock prices 10 years from now will certainly be higher than they are today. But whether they'll be higher next tomorrow or next week or next month nobody knows but you're sitting there with that money machine cranking out money and you, you'll be happy you got that machine so you're saying dividends is really the key to investing because right sure. now people are saying dividends are hardly of any interest they want to be in google and nvidia and you know salesforce yeah. and facebook and all these companies that are shooting to the moon here 
Who yeah. needs dividends when your money's going to be doubling and tripling? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. what is your retort to that as to why these old-fashioned well, dividends Well, you and I, you and I lived the dot-com bubble where people were thinking the same way. And I'm not saying uh, Google's a dot-com type stock, but we remember when uh, Yahoo was the craze. It was selling for... <laughs> You're not gonna, do you know what the price earnings ratio was at Google? Probably over a thousand something, right? It, it was two thousand four hundred. It was selling yep. for two thousand four hundred times earnings, and uh, didn't it didn't pay any dividends. And people said, "Who needs dividends? You know, the price has gone up by a factor of ten. It's going to go up by another factor of ten. And the the thing about it was, it was it was just it was a crazy valuation. If you look at the earnings it had, and, and unlike most dot com stocks, uh, Yahoo actually had some earnings. But to justify the valuation that was put on that, Yahoo would have to become profitable in the future. It would have to be as, and this is in 2000, it would have to be as profitable as Walmart was, not just one store, the whole Walmart company in 2000, twice as profitable in 2001, three times as profitable in 2002, and so on forever. And it, it made no sense. People were just buying with the hope they could sell to somebody else for a higher price, which of course is called the greater fool theory. You pay a foolish price hoping to find a bigger fool than yourself who will pay a higher price. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. And the, the thing about value investing, it may be, it may be old and it may be stodgy, but, but it always works in the long run. If you buy good companies paying good dividends, you're, you're, you're going to come out ahead. The, ar- the argument today would be, yes, th- those were speculative bubbles, the dot-com, but today the companies that are doing well, uh, the Googles and Facebooks of the world, are real businesses. They're really profitable. And actually, their PE ratios, Apple, is is rel- it's below the market in many cases. So yep, yep. they're, they're saying this is not speculative bubble as it was in the dot-com era. Yep. Apple's a very interesting stock. It's one of my favorite stocks. But I view it basically as a dividend stock, a cash cow, a money machine. It's paying its dividends, I think, 1.7%, almost 2%. And uh, dividends growing at 5 10% a year. It's a great investment, not because you think the price is going to go to 200 or 300 or 500 it's a great investment because it's going to pay dividends. So as, as far as, as, the, as far as the eye can see, you you talk in the book about individual stocks. Right. When does it make sense for individual investors to do individual stocks paying dividends versus exchange traded funds or mutual funds or kind of some more pooled way of investing your money in dividend stocks? Yeah, that's that's an interesting question. I asked uh, Dave Swenson, who was a former student of mine. I I, I was one of the, Tobin and I were, were his PhD thesis advisors, and he went off to Wall Street and he came back to manage Yale's endowment, a very successful investor. And I asked him to write a forward for my book, and he said, uh, I cannot endorse for individual investors. I cannot endorse anything other than index funds. And that, that's a reasonable argument because you buy an index fund, you kind of you do as well as the market, and maybe you'll forget about it. Maybe you won't uh, be tempted to be greedy and jump in and out of the market, trying to time the market, which is really hard. On the other hand, it kind of it ties you down to the market. You look at uh, Warren Buffett's portfolio, his, his stock portfolio, he's got 50% of his money in three stocks and 75% in six stocks. And you, you're never going to beat the market if you buy the market. I mean, the only way to, <laughs> to beat the market is to have the courage to buy a small number of great companies that pay good dividends and just hold them and, and be happy. And f- for investors who are greedy or fearful, investors who want to jump in with both feet when the market's going up and want to jump out <laughs> when the market's going down, it, it, it takes courage to do that, to put all your money in three stocks, five stocks, seven stocks, something like that. So, so it, you it, think that's not a good idea to do a concentrated portfolio? For no, I think, it's, I think it's a very good idea. And my, my, my portfolio is as concentrated as Buffett. And But the thing is, it takes the courage to say, I've picked a half dozen good stocks, and uh, I'm going to stick with them no matter what happens to the price. In fact, if the price goes down, I'll buy more. And it takes, it takes you have to overcome, and that's what value investors, the secret of value investing really, is over, overcoming the natural human emotions we all have, which is fear and greed. And it's not just the stock market. It's our jobs. It's our relationships, our families. Everywhere, we have these human emotions that cause us to do things which aren't always in our best interest. So, yeah. so would you say right now we're in a, a era of greed as opposed to fear? I No, I don't think so. I think we're, I think we're in a balance. I think if you look at stocks today, the, the average stock in the S&P 500 is paying almost a 2% dividend. It's a little bit below 2%. 
And then you look at 10-year treasury bonds and they're paying a little over 2%. And the thing, you know, Warren Buffett says, uh, stocks are just disguised bonds, you know, because bonds pay coupons and stocks pay dividends. But the big difference is stock dividends are going to grow over time and bond coupons aren't. And so if you got you buy stocks today, just index funds say, and you got 2% dividends and the dividends grow by 5% a year, which is, you know, historically and thinking into the future is reasonable with the growth of the U.S. economy. It works out, the math of it works out that you end up with a 7% return in the long run, which is a lot better than buying bonds paying 2%. And so I think I think stocks are, are fairly priced now. It's not like 2000 where it was crazy. It's not like too high. It's not like 2009 where it was crazy. It was, it was too low. It's It's just... It's just about right right now. Fairly valued, I guess you'd put it. Fairly yeah. valued. Okay, we're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Dr. Gary Smith. Uh, he is a professor at, of economics at Pomona College in California. His new book is called Money Machine, The Surprisingly Simple Power of Value Investing. There's a website you can find out more about it, which is at his website, GarySmithN.com. We'll be back after this. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Bob Pritchard has over 30 years of experience as a straight-talking business consultant and author working with some of the top Fortune 500 companies. Now he's come to the Voice America Business Channel to help you and your business. Tune in to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show for information about starting and successfully running a profitable business. From the movers and shakers to great marketing screw-ups, you can't afford to miss a single edition of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show, Tuesdays at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. Leadership is a vital skill set in today's competitive global economy. Being a leader is not enough. To succeed, you must optimize your performance and know how to imbue others in your organization with leadership skills. Practical, actionable leadership insights are the focus of Leadership Development News, hosted each Monday at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern, by Kathy Greenberg and Relly Nadler on the Voice America Business Channel. Doctors Greenberg and Nadler, who coach global leaders on how to be most effective, will share their insights and contacts. The path to leadership excellence begins here. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Gary Smith. He's a professor of economics at Pomona College in California. He's got a new book called Money Machine, The Surprisingly Simple Simple Power of Value Investing. A website to find out more about him and his book is GarySmithN, like Nancy, dot com. Thanks uh, for being with us, Gary. Thank you for having me again. So you talk about semi-efficient markets in the book. I mean, there's always this school of thought. There's the random walk, Britain, Malkiel kind of, you can't yep. beat the market because all the information's in the market. And then there's the other, the active managers say, I can always beat the market. You shouldn't settle <laughs> for the average. So where do you come out on that kind of continuum of efficient versus not efficient markets. Yeah, well, it's it's somewhere in between. I mean, part of the, part of the thing is uh, people hear a hot tip, or they read a story in the Wall Street Journal, or they see something on the internet, and they think they're going to jump in and be the first person to buy that stock or sell that stock. And of course, it's never the case. By the time the stories in the Wall Street Journal or on the internet, uh, it's either a bogus story or if it's real, the professionals have already bought or sold. It's too late to do it. You know, like you read. In the Wall Street Journal, that Ford F-150 sales are up, and you say, oh, I ought to go out and buy Ford stock. Well, it's too late. The price has already taken that into account. On the other hand, humans, it's, it's well documented. I mean, the, the last Nobel Prize in economics to Richard Thaler, it's well documented that uh, humans, being human, we overreact, overreact to news. And so when good news comes out about a company, we tend to push the price too high. 
And when bad news comes out, we tend to push the price too low. And so in, in that case, in that's because of that, markets are only semi-efficient because it, it creates buying opportunities for uh, contrarians or value investors. I mean, value investing is really a contrarian strategy. If prices go way up so they're too high relative to dividends and earnings, then value investors are going to shy away, which means they'll be going against the market. And the same way when prices uh, fall, they're going to be low relative to dividends, relative to earnings, and value investors are going to back up a truck and load it up with stocks, which is, again, contrary to the market. And so I say that they're semi-efficient in that it's a mistake to think I'm going to buy a stock based on a news story I heard. That it's, it's way too late for that. On the other hand, you say I'm going to buy a stock or sell a stock because people have gotten really greedy and pushed prices too high or really fearful and pushed prices too low. That, that works. That part of it works. Do you say people should only buy stocks that actually pay dividends? I mean, the argument for growth stocks of Facebook or Google is they're making so much money yeah. that you're better off as a shareholder to have them reinvest it back into a growing business than to pay it out for you in cash. This is what Steve Jobs had always said at Apple before yeah, they started exactly. paying the dividend. And so, same thing Berkshire Hathaway. They've never paid a dividend because right. uh, Warren Buffett figures he can invest the money better than we can, and so leave it to him to do it. And so there's several uh, value investing benchmarks. The, the, the easiest one to understand is the dividend one, and so we've been talking about that. But there are other ones. There's there's a Bogle model, and there's the, the Schiller's Cape model, and there's something called economic value added that are all discussed in the book. And there are all ways to value companies that, that don't pay dividends. And so I actually have a pretty good stake in uh, Google. I, uh, I, had, I went up and gave a talk at Google. They'd invited me to go up there and talk about the perils of data mining. And I was so impressed by that, I went out and bought the stock. And the good thing about them is they do have fabulous earnings. I mean, they got great earnings. The earnings are growing. They got great people working for them. It's a, I've got a, I've got a son in college now. Who every, everybody's doing software stuff. They want to go, go work for Google or, or companies like that. And it's got a bright future. And so it, even though they don't pay dividends, they do have great earnings. The problem with Amazon is it doesn't have the earnings. I mean, it's. It's taking over the world, but but Bezos seems to have an aversion to actually making money. And so every time they get some cash, you find something new to spend it on. So, so you're saying, I mean, you would have missed Amazon. I would have missed it. I would have missed Amazon completely. I did miss Amazon completely. And and sometimes that happens. His, his point but would be. I also missed Yahoo. <laughs> so. I mean, uh, uh, Jeff Bezos's point would be he's got such growth and so many opportunities that he wants to keep taking not profits, but cash flow to reinvest in the business and make it bigger and bigger. And the stock's gone from 10 to 1,000 or something like that in it 10 has, years. It has, But the, so, but the so, profits have hardly ever shown up. Some years they lose money. Some years they make a little bit of money. I was talking to a, a former student of mine about two weeks ago who's, who's now a big uh, fund manager. And he said the thing about Amazon is, well, first what we've been talking about, that they seem to have an aversion to making money. And the other thing is if his strategy is successful – if he builds Amazon big enough to knock out uh, Walmart and Target and Costco and all those companies, the government's going to step in and break them up the same way they broke up AT&T and broke up uh, Standard Oil. They're, they're going to come in and say you're a monopoly and you're going to have to break up into smaller segments. So is that something as a value investor, you basically have to give up on getting Amazons of the world because it's just not going to fit your model for those sure. kind of for shooting sure. ones, you're just going to miss those. Is that part of That's what right. you have to kind of... But for every, for, for every Amazon you miss, you're going to miss a Yahoo that dropped 90% in value. And, or companies that never never went anywhere. And that, that is, that is the, the nature of value investing, is you don't buy companies that don't have proven profitability or proven dividends. You don't buy lottery tickets. And, uh-huh. Okay. So you talk in your chapter of semi-efficient markets about uncertainty and disagreement. So what do you mean by that? In, in looking at a stock, there's never complete certainty. You're going to be dealing with summer uncertainty. How do you deal with that as, deal with that as a value investor? Well, so, so some people have this idea that, uh, oh, I got this hot tip. I, got the, I heard about something and I had to buy the stock. And you ought to step back for a minute and, and remember that at the current market price, there's just as many buyers as sellers. You know, there's just as many people who think it's cheap as who think it's expensive. And what do you know that they don't know? And so that, that's what I mean by disagreement is there's always equal numbers on both sides of the market price who think the price is too high or the price is too low. And so you shouldn't think just because 
you feel good about the stock. <laughs> nobody else has thought about that stock and nobody else has considered it. And the market price reflects this balance between uh, buyers and sellers. And so you got to think about not what do I know that others don't know, but what are they doing that, that is wrong? And it gets back to the, the fear and greed idea. You're kind of looking at it as like a zero-sum game. There's a buyer and seller. One of them is right and one of them is wrong. But in exactly. the long run, both can be right. I mean, you, a seller takes his profit, but the stock keeps going up. Yep. And they both could be right. And the, the nice thing about, you know, people say the stock market's like a uh, Las Vegas or Atlantic City. It's a big gambling casino. And it's partly right in that there's a lot of uncertainty about what's going to happen. But it's wrong in the sense that in Las Vegas and Atlantic City, people on average lose money. And in the stock market, you're buying stocks and companies that make profits and pay dividends. And the average investor makes money. The average investor makes about 10% a year and has made about 10% a year in the long run. We don't guarantee in the, in, the, in the future, but the stocks on average make money. And so it's not just buy lottery tickets where on average you lose money or playing roulette where on average you lose money. Stocks on average you make money. And you can have, the, like you say, you can have people who sell in the short term and make a little profit. And you can have people who hold for the long term and make a, make a lot of profit. Uh, when does it make sense to reinvest dividends versus to take the dividends and invest them somewhere else? Well, it's it's really the same question. You know, it, it doesn't matter whether it's dividends or your savings from your paycheck or uh, or inheritance or whatever. It's just a question of is now more like two thousand when it was a bad time to buy stocks, or is it more like two thousand nine when it was a great time to buy stocks, or more, or more like right now when it's kind of a okay time to buy stocks and. Putting dividends in is no different than putting your paycheck in. It's, it's the same question. Do you think it's a good idea for the discipline of it and the automatic nature yeah. of it? And then there's a lot to be said. I want to clarify what I said before about, about indexing. I wasn't saying indexing is for everybody. I'm, I was saying that indexing is good for people who are impulsive and they, they, tr they would be tempted to jump in and out of the stock market. But for people who could control their impulses, buying a handful of great stocks is, is a better strategy. So what does it take emotionally to do that, to be buying aggressively in 2008 and 2009 when it looks like the world's going to come to an end, yeah. and to be selling when everybody's happy and the markets are hitting new highs? What, what emotional skills do you need to develop to be able to do that? Because most people are not able to. You know, I, I, th I think a large part of it is this fixation on, on trying to predict price movements. And so people, when they see prices going up, there's a natural tendency to think, oh, I'm going to make money in the stock market because prices went up in the past. And so they, they jump in expecting prices to go up. And then when prices go down, my wife's a financial planner, and she had in, in 2009, when, in 2008, 2009, when prices dropped, she had all these clients saying, we need to sell everything before the market goes down anymore, okay? And that's, they're thinking the price, market's prices have gone down, they're going to keep going down. And what value investing gets you to do is stop trying to predict prices. Don't try and predict what the prices are going to be tomorrow, next week, next month. Just think about how high are the dividends and earnings relative to uh, the prices. And those, those two periods, it was, it was absolutely completely obvious that uh, prices were high or low relative dividends. In 2000, the average dividend yield was only 1%, and long-term treasury bonds were paying uh, nearly 7%. And that, that's clearly, that's not an attractive time to be buying stocks. And in 2009, it was the other way around. Stock, the average stock was paying a dividend over 3%, and treasury bonds were paying uh, less than 3%, 2.5%. And it was, it was absolutely clear that if you think of it for stocks as a long-term investment, you're better off buying stocks in 2009 and you're better off not buying stocks in 2000 because the odds are just against you. So is that a ratio people should look at all the time is the dividend yield on the S&P 500 versus the 10-year treasury yield and compare the two? I, that, that, is, that is the starting point. Like I said, there's, I have like four metrics des described in the book. One, one is this dividend yield comparison, which is 2% dividend yield right now compared to 2% 2, 2 uh, treasury rates, which makes stock looks, look pretty good because dividends are going to go up. But there's also the uh, the Bogle model, which is looking at price earnings ratios, and the Schiller model, which is looking at long term price earnings ratios, and then there's economic value added, which is looking at, at companies' profitability, the rate of return on, on their assets, 
And those are more complicated than we talk about right here, but uh, I go through them in some detail in the book. I mean, the Schiller, the Cape Index, yep. is an all-time highs. You know, he yep. thinks like in 1929 about to fall off yep. a cliff. Yep. So you're saying not to be worried <laughs> by that? Well, the, the thing about it is, you know, Warren Buffett made the same point uh, just a couple of weeks ago. The thing about it is interest rates are at an all-time low. In, you know, long-term, the 10-year treasury rate long-term has averaged about 4.5%. And right now it's 2%. And so when interest rates are so low, you expect prices to be high relative to dividends and relative to earnings. You expect the CAPE to be high. I mean, they, sh- they should be. Otherwise, stocks would be even more of a bargain. Yeah, so it, relative to interest rates, it makes sense. Everything should be relative to interest rates. And so people who say PEs are historic high or CAPE is historic high, they're missing, they're missing half of the comparison, which is, well, what's your alternative? Yes. Buying long-term bonds at 2%. Indeed. All right, we're going to take another break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of the Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Dr. Gary Smith. He's a professor of economics at Pomona College in California. His new book is called Money Machine, The Surprisingly Simple Power of Value Investing. A website to find out more about him and his book is GarySmithN.com. We'll be back after this. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog, Press Pass? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at VAPressPass.com. That's VAPressPass.com. VA Press Pass by Voice America. All access, all the time. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Dr. Gary Smith. Uh, He is a professor of economics at Pomona College in California, author of a new book called Money Machine, The Surprisingly Simple Power of Value Investing. His website, Gary Smith N, like the word, like Nancy, dot com. Welcome back to the show, uh, Dr. Smith. Thank you. So you said, how can we distinguish between skill and luck when it comes to investing? Yep. And, and that's that's a hard one because uh, there is a lot of luck in the stock market. You know, the, the fact that we can't predict whether stock prices are going up or down when it goes up, people say, see how smart I was? <laughs> and then when prices go down, they say, what, are, what happened? Those people are stupid. Prices should have gone up. It's not my fault. And I used to do an experiment when I was teaching uh, investments at Yale. I'd have a class of like 120 students, say 128 students. And I'd do a little coin flip prediction. And I'd divide the class. Left side of the room predicts heads, right side tails, and I'd flip a coin. And uh, say it came up uh, heads, and so the left side was right. And so I take those 64 kids and divide those in half and flip it again, and half of those would be right. And after five or six flips, I'd be down to somebody who had got all six flips correct. And then I'd say, uh, so, anyone want to bet this person will get the next six correct? And, of course, no one would. And, and the point was that uh, you can, you can uh, after the fact, identify people who have done really well, even in things as random as, as coin flipping. And so I was up at a conference one time with a 
friend of mine who was a professor of economics at Stanford, and I was he was talking about how markets are efficient, nobody can beat the market, and blah, 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 blah. And I said, well, how about Warren Buffett? And he said, well, enough monkeys typing enough, hitting enough typewriter keys, you know, the typewriter paradox. And he thought uh, Warren Buffett was just a lucky monkey. And uh, and there's there's a little bit of truth to that in the sense that sometimes people who do well in the stock market, you think about it and you think, well, they, they were pretty lucky about it. And there are other people like Warren Buffett. And, and the reason I love Warren Buffett is uh, he says things that make sense. I mean, when he says my favorite holding period is forever, when he says stocks are disguised bonds, when he said I buy an assumption they could close the market for five years. I mean, he, he says things that are absolutely perfectly sensible. And so I attribute him to him. I attribute skill and the skill is being a Midwestern guy with a lot of common sense who doesn't get carried away by, by fear and greed. So you're saying skill is very rare then. You're basically, most people are unlucky and unskillful, so they shouldn't even try, is what you're saying. <laughs> well, I, I'm saying there's a lot of, there's more luck in the stock market than people want to admit. And so you get these stories. You get these people who've beaten the market for five years and they get written up in Money Magazine or somewhere about how, what a great stock picker they are. And then next year, oops, <laughs> they fall off the cliff. And the innumerable studies have been done of, uh, for example, mutual funds. And you take the, the top performing mutual funds of the past five years, and over the next five years, they're no more likely to beat the market than the ones that were in the bottom half the last five years. And there is a lot of luck in the stock market. And uh, so we shouldn't be carried away by somebody's had a great year or a great five years or <laughs> like that. We should, we should take into account that maybe that person was, was one of the persons who called the, the six coin flips correctly. But when somebody's done well for 10, 20, or 30 years, and, and what they're doing makes sense, then we could think, well, it's probably not just it's probably not just luck. There's probably some skill going on there. So you're saying, for the most part, as far as mutual funds, active funds which have higher fees do not make sense compared to index funds where you're going to match the market. Is that what you're oh, saying? Yeah. Every every study that's been done on this shows that uh, mutual funds, on average, don't beat the market, and the ones that do worse than the market are the ones that charge the highest fees, the load fees, the management fees, and so on. And so, if you're going to buy a, a mutual fund, what you want to buy is it's so one offered by a reputable company with very low expenses, like Vanguard. I mean, Vanguard is everybody's favorite fund. They're no load, low expense, highly diversified. And it's not going to be a really thrilling investment, but it'll probably be a profitable one in the long run. Okay. And then you talk about an insider trading. Now, there's legitimate and illegal insider trading. Legitimate is corporate officials buying and selling and telling you what 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 they're doing over time. Some people say that's a smart way to buy stocks. If a company officials are buying heavily their own stocks, that's a sign of confidence. They know something good. Is that a good way to do well as follow insiders and insider trading? Well, as you know, some, kind of, some kinds of insider trading are not just uh, the CEO buys stock because he loves his company, but the CEO buys stock because he knows they got a new product in the pipeline, or he knows he knows what the new an, what the latest annual report is going to be before it's released, and that that, that kind of stuff is illegal. And so, it's, it's a little from the CEO standpoint, you got to be really careful. From the investor standpoint, there have been there in the past there were several studies that showed that uh, since the insiders have to report their trading to the SEC, there were several studies that showed if you followed the lead of the CEOs, you could actually beat the market. But then everybody started following the CEOs, and I think that I think that thing has disappeared. I think it's no longer of any advantage. Yeah. So let, let's go. You have you go through the series of emotions that people use in investors and how to counteract them. The first emotion is is confusing a great company with a great stock. What is right. wrong with doing that? How, how should you counteract that? Well, it, it again goes back to value investing. But you know, people will say, "Oh, I love Starbucks. I ought to buy Starbucks stock," or "I love Amazon. I ought to buy Amazon stock." But as every investor knows, you can't say, I will buy a stock no matter what the price is. At some price, the stock is cheap. At some price, the stock is expensive. And to say, I'm going to buy a stock regardless of price is a classic mistake. And you remember back in the 70s, we had the Nifty 50, which were, people were, they were growth stocks. And people said you could never go wrong buying a growth stock no matter what the price. And you had companies selling for, you had Avon, you had IBM, you had Polaroid, Kodak. McDonald's, all these companies selling for 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, 100 times earnings. And people bought them because they thought no price was too high to pay for a growth stock. And, of course, that, 
you know, logically, there has to be some price that's too high. And you know, a lot of those companies I mentioned right now, of course, have done very poorly since that mm-hmm. time. But the, but the main point is just a great company is great. I, lo- I love great companies. You know, I look at Fortune's list of the most admired companies as a starting point for investing. I look at companies that are that are revered in their field by their competitors, by their suppliers, by their customers. That's a great starting point. But you can't buy a stock without thinking about the price because logically there's got to be some price that's too high and some that's too low. Yeah. Then you talk about buying hot tips and you have a specific story <laughs> about a company called Ecosphere Technologies. Yeah. Tell us that story and what is the danger of buying hot tips? Well, I was, I was uh, on vacation with my family down in Costa Rica and there was a guy down there. And he was telling us about this, uh, he was going to pay for his vacation with the stock he'd bought. And it was some company that made, uh, I think it was solar powered batteries or some, some darn thing. And I asked him what he knew about it. And he said his uh, auto mechanic had recommended it to him. <laughs> it sounded like a pretty sketchy uh, basis for buying a stock. And so uh, when I got back, I looked into it. And the thing was, the thing was it never had any profits and uh, wasn't likely to have any profits in the future. And you look at what happened to the stock and the, the graphs are in the book. There was a little period of time when all of a sudden the trading went through, the number of shares traded went through the roof and the price went through the roof. And it was just a bunch of people like this guy who were exchanging hot tips and, and playing follow the leader, jump on the bandwagon and buying the stock because others are buying the stock. And then the price went up and so they buy more of the stock. And of course, the, the story had an unhappy ending because the company never was profitable. And so the price collapsed after a few months or years later, the price went back to virtually zero because there was nothing there but a hot tip. Are there some bubbles now that are like the South Sea bubble or, you know, we've had housing bubble, the dot-com bubble. Where do you see bubbles in today's market? I, I don't I don't see any specific bubbles. I mean, there's some stocks which are overhyped, you know. So the, again, the empirical evidence is that uh, the average IPO does worse than the market and when people buy an IPO, their their initial public offering, they're essentially buying lottery tickets, and some of them turn out to be Apple and Google and Facebook, but 99% of them end up to be companies you've never heard of, companies we've forgotten. And so, the only bubble I would see is is in uh, IPOs. People get too excited about those. Now, you also talk about chasing trends as a problem. What are some of the trends that people chase, and, and what's the danger in that? Well, it's almost always price trends, and so. <clears throat> Like I said before, when prices were going up in 2000 and, and neighbors were getting rich, everybody thought they should uh, join join the join the crowd. And there was a I, I tell the story of Bill's Barbershop in Cape Cod. I was vacationing out there, and there's a barbershop that I actually went to. And these guys were sitting around talking about dot com stocks and how they're going to get rich, and you couldn't go wrong buying a dot com stock. And they, the only thing they knew about the stocks were the price were going up. They didn't know what the companies did or how much profitable they were or anything. It was just this price has gone up 50%. we got to buy it before it goes up another 50%. And uh, that story was actually written up in the Wall Street Journal. It was Bill's Barbershop. <laughs> you know, all the guys sitting around talking about uh, how you couldn't go wrong in the stock market. And uh, they, they were what they're doing is chasing trends. They didn't think they didn't even know what the companies did, you know, what the products were or anything like that. And then after the dot-com bubble, after it popped, these people were much poorer for the experience. And Bill, he had a funny story, which is related in the book, is he said he's given up the stock market, and now he goes to casinos to make money. And <laughs> much, much safer way of doing it, yeah. Yeah. Now, some would say that the, the equivalent of that today would be cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin, which have gone up yeah. thousands of percent in the last yeah. year or so. Is that a bubble? or? or yeah, it, it, I definitely. I didn't think of that. I didn't mention that before because I don't think of that as a stock. I think of that. It's like buying uh, Beanie Babies or uh, baseball cards or <laughs> collectibles. And I think in the, I think the future is probably going to have a lot of electronic currency. But the whole Bitcoin thing, I think, is the valuation. The increase in the market price is driven by things that have nothing to do with fundamentals. And so, therefore, it would be dangerous for people because everybody's oh, pouring into those. Definitely, definitely. Worse than Beanie Babies. So, I mean, it might what? work out. Beanie Babies worked out for a while. But in terms of a long-term value perspective, Beanie Babies, gold, baseball cards, it's not a value investment because there's no cash. It doesn't, it doesn't yield anything. So what turns it? What turns it from soaring to all of a sudden there's no bids and, and it collapses? What, what well, is, is it psychological? What, what makes that change happen? Well, see, what happens is, uh, 
and it goes back, you know, as far in recorded history, you know, the tulip bowl bubble and, and stuff like that is people buy because the price is going to go up. It's like the greater fool theory. I buy it from you for, for $100 thinking I can sell it to somebody else for 200 And they pay 200 thinking they can sell it for 300 and so on down the line. And the only reason we're buying is because we think we can sell it for a higher price. But then what happens when the price stops going up? Well, now there's no reason to buy you know, if I, why should I pay 5000 for something if I can't sell it for 6000 And so I want to get out. And then once the price starts falling, then everybody is like, it's turned into a bad investment. I bought this for the price to go up, not for the price to go down. I got to get out. And then like the, the tulip bulb bubble or the dot-com bubble prices drop 90% because there's nothing to sustain it. Like with the real value stock, when the price drops, you still got the dividends. And in fact, you would say, if the price falls by 50%, I had to buy more. But with a, something that you're buying only in the hope that the price will go up, if the price goes down, there's no reason to buy at all. Very good. We're going to take another break. This is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Dr. Gary Smith, a professor of economics at Pomona College in California. His book is called Money Machine, The Surprisingly Simple Power of Value Investing. His website, GarySmithN.com. We'll be back after this. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. We hear it and read about it every day in the news. America is heading over a fiscal cliff. Home prices are still receding and unemployment growing. How can you preserve and increase your wealth in this kind of economy? Tune in to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with host Jay Taylor. Jay will explain the decline of our monetary system and the economy and will give you winning investment ideas and the tools to protect and increase your wealth. Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor can be heard Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between, discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this, this hour is Dr. Gary Smith, professor of economics at Pomona College in California, author of Money Machine, The Surprisingly Simple Power of Value Investing. Welcome back to the show, Dr. Smith. Great, great to be here. So there's some specific areas you talk about in the book I want to get to, which is closed-end funds. A closed-end fund is one where they issue a limited number of shares. It can either s- sell at a discount or a premium to its net asset value. What is right or wrong about uh, using closed-end funds? Well, most mutual funds, the ones that we're familiar with, when you want to buy more shares, you send money to the company and they send you shares. Or you want to cash them in, you cash them in with the company and they, they redeem your shares for you. Closed-end funds, like you say, are kind of unusual and not, not that well-known in that a fixed number is, is issued. And if you want to buy in some of those shares, you have to buy them from another investor, just like you'd buy Apple stock or IBM stock. You have to, they're traded on exchanges. And you buy for whatever the, for whatever the price is. Excuse me. <clears throat> and sometimes the price is uh, high, and sometimes the price is low. And so, if you take take a closed-end mutual fund, and you say they've got ten million in assets, ten million dollars in assets, and they have a million shares outstanding, each share in theory is worth uh, ten dollars, but it might be traded on an exchange for twelve dollars or nine dollars. And the cases where it's trading at a discount at $9 are especially interesting because for $9, you can buy essentially stock that's worth $10. And so you're getting dividends on $10 worth of stock, even though you only pay $9 for it. And so 
if you're going to buy a mutual fund, you've got the, the Vanguard type funds, which are no load, low expenses, which are good. You've got the ones that are loads and high expenses, which are bad. <laughs> and then you've got the closed end, which are, which are even better than the uh, no loads because you're getting more stock than you pay for. So you like buying closed ends at a discount? Oh, I love then. them. I love them. I mean, and, some people say that's a good idea, but the discount can go even deeper. Right. And the, and the discount can, can go deeper, in which case I'd probably buy more. But the thing is, no matter what the discount does, again, if you're in it for the long run, if you're not betting on the discount closing, if you're getting dividends on $10 worth of stock that you buy for 9 that that's good. It's better that's than buying. That's value play is buying something cheaper than it's really worth, is what you're saying. Right. It's a total value play. Uh-huh. Are there some specific closed-end funds you like, like the general ones or specific Areas, there's many different kinds of closed-end funds. Oh, there's, there's, there's so many of them. And uh, one I've, I bought uh, frequently in the past, and I think I still have some of it, is, uh, what, am I supposed to name? <laughs> mention sure, that's fine. Here? Yeah, that's fine. Well, First Australia, it was, it was a, it's a, it's a uh, closed-end fund that specializes in Australian stocks. And I, I figure Australia is a stable country. <laughs> it's got laws and rules. Companies are not going to get taken over by the government. And so it's, 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 a, it's a good country to invest in. And at the time, the stocks, Australian stocks were down, the dividends were up, and this closed-end fund was selling for like a 20% discount to net asset value. And so you got the double double play there. You got high-dividend stocks in a stable country, and you get to buy them at a discount to market prices. So I love and that. That worked out well? That worked out well. Uh-huh. The, one, the one in the book I talk about a lot is uh, Gemini Capital, which... It's one of these closed-end funds that had that little wrinkle on it, which, as at some point in the future, 20 years down the road, it becomes open-end or it liquidates itself. And so the discount has to go to zero. And so that's that, that was one of my favorite investments of all time. I, t- I tell that story in some detail in the book. And that's still around, Gemini? No, they, they liquidated. They I think they started a second Gemini. But the first Gemini had this thing where it, it's, it, was, it, was, it uh, issued shares to the general public. And then the shares traded, sometimes 10% discount, sometimes 20%, sometimes 30%. And then, but it had this fixed expiration date. I don't remember what it was, but it had a fixed but point. you knew that eventually that discount was going to disappear. You, know, you knew the discount was going to go to zero because it was written into the, uh, yeah. you know, the, the terms of the deal. And so you got, you, got the, you got the dividends at a discount, plus you got the discount going to zero. So it was win-win. Right. You also have a chapter on what you call special opportunities, what are some ways of finding special opportunities that are worth investing in? Well, sometimes, you know, about this efficient market and semi-efficient market, sometimes things, <laughs> things are just out of whack. And so one, one classic example, there, is, uh, there are these two oil companies, Royal Dutch and Shell, and they merged. And the interesting thing about the merger was that they kept their separate stocks trading as, as separate companies, even though they were one company. And they said 60% of the uh, dividends will go to the owners of Royal Dutch. 60% of the earnings will be attributed to Royal Dutch. If we ever go public, if we ever sell a company, 60% of the proceeds will go to the people who own the Royal Dutch uh, shares. And so on every fundamental value principle, Royal Dutch stock was 60%, Shell was 40%. And so Royal Dutch should have been worth 50% more than Shell. And in an efficient market, that would have been locked in there. It would have been a ratio of 1.5 to 1, 60 to 40 forever. But in fact, it, it didn't happen, which is a sign of inefficient markets. Sometimes the, the premium was 1.8, sometimes it was 1.2. It fluctuated all over the place. And so as a, as a special opportunity, you should buy the one that's overpriced. I'm sorry, buy the one that's underpriced and sell the one that's overpriced. So this is like arbitrage, basically, what arbitrage is. Definitely like arbitrage. And in that case, uh, eventually it did go to zero because they, the companies did uh, fully merge and they, they, they gave 60% of the proceeds to the Royal Dutch and 40% to the, the Shell people, and the price is equalized. So. Mm-hmm. Also, you talk about investing in your home and seeing value in your home. It's not the same as it's not paying dividends, but there is an income aspect to that as well. That's right. Tell us so, about your home. Yeah. Yeah. So the thing about value investing is you, you could apply it to anything. You can apply it to bonds. You can apply it to stocks. You can apply it to a business, small business, big business. And you can also apply it to your home. And uh, you don't see dividends from your home. But what you see is, is the rent you don't pay every month. And so if you think about what is the net cash flow, what is this money machine giving me? 
It's saving me rent every month, but I do have to pay property taxes and I have to pay uh, mortgage payments. I get deductions on these things. I might have some maintenance expenses and put, put all of them together, add them all up and see on, on average, are you making money or losing money on your home relative to renting? And the, you can't make a general thing, a general rule like uh, every home is overpriced or every home is underpriced or it's always better to buy or it's always better to rent. And, you know, I laugh when people say buying is always better than renting or renting is always better than buying. It depends on, on where you are in, in, in the country. In some parts of the country, especially in the, in, the, in the heartland, homes are really, really cheap. One of the homes I looked at a while back was uh, in Fishers, Indiana, which is a suburb of uh, Indianapolis. It's several times been rated uh, one of the top places to live in the U.S. I think the median household income is over 100000 It's a really, really nice town. And to rent a standard 2,000-square-foot, three-bedroom, two-bath home there would cost about 15000 a year. And to buy it would cost... <laughs> You're in Boston, right? I'm in New York, but it's okay. You're in New York, and I'm in California. And so when I tell you... Cost one hundred thirty-five thousand dollars to buy that house. We're like, we're like, wait a minute, did you misplace the decimal point or something? Yeah. But in a place like that, that is a terrific investment if you're going to live in Fishers. And the cash flow from owning that house instead of renting is just irresistible. I and think how I about doing this as an investment? Pieces. How about buying homes as an investment where you're receiving rental income? It's a form of dividends, kind of. It's, yeah, it's an implicit. It's the rent you're saving means that's more money that you can put in the stock market or, or spend on going to the movies or whatever. It's an implicit income. Yeah. And in people about- think about it that way. Again, it's like, it's like stocks. They think about housing prices have been going up. I better buy a, I should buy a house because it's going to keep going up. Or housing prices are going to go down, have been going down. I don't want to buy a house because they might keep going down. And instead, you should think about the cash flow, which is how much rent am I saving by owning my own home? And sometimes it makes sense and sometimes it doesn't. We have about a minute to go. Kind of sum up what difference it'll make in people's financial lives to follow your principles of value investing instead of what's most popular today, which is to go for aggressive growth. Well, I think that the two things are, one, of course, I think in the long run, you're better off with value investing because you got that that bedrock of dividends to fall back on. And the other thing is, I, th- I think it's it's less stressful. And if you're trying to predict where which way stock prices are going to go, are going to go, it's so, so hard. And you wake up every morning and you watch prices during the day and you get stressed out about it. And value investors don't get stressed out. Like Warren Buffett saying, I buy in the assumption they could close the market for five years. You buy a stock and every, check in every once in a while, see if it's even even better bargain. But you don't have to watch stock prices minute by minute, day by day. You don't have to be fearful. You don't have to be uh, regretful. And you sleep better at night. Very good. Well, thanks so much. My guest this hour has been Dr. Gary Smith. His book is called Money Machine, The Surprisingly Simple Power of Value Investing. You can find out more at GarySmithN.com. Thanks so much for being a guest on The Money Answer Show, Dr. Smith. Thank you very much, Jordan. Thanks again. We'll be back next week with another edition of The Money Answer Show. Goodbye for now. Thank you for joining Jordan Goodman and The Money Answer Show. If you have a question for Jordan, please visit his website at www.moneyanswers.com. And be sure to tune in every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time right here on Voice America Business. See you next week.